Good evening and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website at independent.org. We've got a great show in the works for this evening. My co-host, Amma Gagarian, is out today on a reporting assignment. With the holiday season in full swing, we're going to look at some of the workers who do the heavy lifting that make it possible. First, the postal workers, the men and women who ensure the holiday cards and gift packages you send get where they're going. And we'll also hear from David Stess, a West Village fixture who's working 16 hours a day, seven days a week at his Christmas tree stand, moving trees to a holiday-hungry public. However, those trees could soon be in short supply, due in part to the impact of climate change. And speaking of that, we'll also journey up to Boston, where the editor of Bostopian News is going to fill us in on how that city's first female mayor, Michelle Wu, is fighting to enact a sweeping municipal Green New Deal that, among other things, envisions free mass transit for all who want to use it. Imagine that. But first, we're going to turn to Columbia University for the latest from the nation's largest active strike, pitting 3,000 student workers against the leaders of a university with a $14.4 billion endowment. The university, with all that wealth and power, is threatening to fire the striking workers from their jobs if they don't end their five-week strike by Friday. The union, in turn, has vowed to shut down the campus tomorrow and is calling for their supporters from around the city to join them starting at 8 a.m. Joining us now to give an update on the increasingly high-stakes labor struggle taking place up in Morningside Heights is Caitlin Liss, one of the organizers of Tomorrow's Actions and a member of the Student Workers of Columbia Union. Caitlin, welcome to WBEI Radio. Hi, thank you so much for having me. You bet. Uh, so um, we we had a, um, another member of your union on a couple of weeks ago who really kind of spelled out the overall stakes of what's going on here. But focusing uh, on, on what's happening this week, uh, can you start by describing what the university has done as far as this uh, essentially surrender ultimatum they've issued threatening to uh, permanently replace all 3000 members of your union if they don't return to work by Friday? Right. So basically what happened is last Thursday, we got an email from HR, which said that if we remain on strike past December 10th, we won't receive our appointments for next semester as usual. So normally what would happen is that I would get an appointment to TA the class that I'm going to TA next semester uh, around this time of the year. But instead, they're not going to do that. And the implication is that they will be looking for um, permanent replacements for those jobs that we would have next semester uh, for striking workers. And we we are uh, currently engaged in an unfair labor practice strike because, among other things, we're protesting the university's uh, unilateral change in our compensation schedule and wage increase freeze that uh, they imposed as a result of us rejecting a tentative agreement last spring. Um, and as ULP strikers, it is illegal to fire us for striking, uh, but that doesn't mean that Columbia isn't going to try, but we see this as really a clear act of intimidation and an attempt to squash our strike power at a crucial moment in the semester. They're trying to make us afraid so that we go back to work before right. it's uh, too late for us to grade. Right. So maybe it's a it's a bluff, and they're, they're testing your resolve. And speaking of resolve, you all have called uh, for protests tomorrow to shut the campus down. Yes. Um, can can you, uh, you describe a 
what you all have in mind and, and how you plan to carry that out? Of course. So we are planning to be picketing all day tomorrow at every entrance of Columbia's Morningside campus. So we're going to be there from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. all around the campus on Morningside Heights. So that's like roughly 116th Street between Broadway and Amsterdam. And there's a bunch of different entrances. We're going to be at every one trying to prevent people from going in and out and basically trying to keep the campus from operating as usual. Um, We're asking members of the Columbia community to stay off campus or to join us on the picket line. And we really want to show Columbia that our strike is strong and that the community supports us. Uh, So we're inviting uh, other New York City unions and community supporters from all over to come out and join us. Right. And and, um, what are some unions or community organizations or uh, notable figures that you've been hearing from uh, chiming in with support and uh, pledges so we, to be there tomorrow. We, we've had uh, some great feedback and pledges of support from lots of unions. I think that we're expecting representatives from the Transportation Workers Union, the Teamsters, News Guild, uh, the Association of Legal Aid uh, Attorneys. We are expecting community organizations like the United Front Against Displacement, which is an anti-gentrification organization that operates uptown. We're expecting some of their representatives to be there. Uh, We've had some great feedback and statements of support from elected representatives. And I think that we're expecting Sean Abreu, who is our city council member elect, and Robert Jackson, who is our state senator, are going to try and make an appearance on the picket line. Uh, so the the response from other unions in the community has been really great. And uh, I mean, our number one ask to listeners would be to join us on the picket line tomorrow if they're able. Uh, trying to maintain a strong picket from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. requires a lot of bodies on the picket line. So how whoever can come out and help us uh, will really be be uh, amazing. Great. Um, and, and, and before we go here, is there... Um, What's the best way for people uh, to uh, follow what y'all are doing and also uh, support you in other ways if they can't physically be there tomorrow? Sure. So to follow what we're doing, I would recommend visiting our Twitter. It's uh, SW underscore Columbia um, to get updates. Uh, We also have a strike hardship fund. Uh, Those of us on strike haven't gotten paid for six weeks, and the hardship fund is really what allows the strike to continue for as long as it's been going on. Uh, There's a link on our Twitter, but you can also find it directly at bit.ly slash CU strike fund is the bit.ly link to the, the hardship fund. And so if people aren't able to make it out to the picket line, donating to the hardship fund really helps keep our strike um, strong. Okay. Well, Caitlin List, thank you for sharing the latest news from Columbia ahead of tomorrow's uh, big action there to really try to uh, get this administration to come to the table and, and treat its workers fairly. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. And um, uh, we we have another uh, labor guest here that's going to be joining us in, in, um, in a moment. Uh, Jonathan Smith, uh, president of the uh, New York Postal Workers Union. And I, I'll just say um, I, I certainly plan to be uh, over at Columbia tomorrow. And uh, it, it's so important, uh, just to interject here for a moment, it's so important that these struggles are are successful. Uh, when, when one labor u- union strike succeeds, it emboldens more, more uh, labor action. And if they fail, it also has a, a very devastating consequences, not only uh, for the people 
who are on strike, but for everybody else who might uh, entertain doing that. Because when you go on, I, I've been on one strike in my life, and when you, when you go on strike, you're risking so much because you don't know what the outcome is going to be. And ultimately, it's about the strength of the solidarity of of everybody, your your coworkers that are taking the same risk with you, and the support and the solidarity of the people in your broader community, because the 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 owners and the bosses they have all the tremendous economic power, and it really comes down to to solidarity and where and that solidarity goes against the dominant uh, strain of this society, which emphasizes a, a hyper capitalist individualism as the way to get ahead in life and and. Uh, solidarity is off, obviously the opposite of that, and in no at no time is solidarity more crucial than during a, a labor strike. I would say so. Um, we certainly wish everybody in that strike at Columbia the best, and and anybody who can be there, I know that they'll be greatly appreciated. And speaking of labor unions and um, the important work they do, uh, Jonathan Smith of the New York Postal Workers Union, uh, thank you for uh, coming on WBAI tonight. We want to hear more about what's going on with the postal service and what y'all are doing to try to keep the postal service, uh, get it back on track. Hey, you need to unmute. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Can you hear me? Yes. Here you fine. Okay. Um, I would, before we get started, I would like to make a comment about the strike, um, uh-huh. how important it is to the postal workers because we, refer to our strike of 1970 as the Great Postal Strike. And it's the shoulders of the giants of, of, of the generations that came before us that we're standing on today. And a lot of people, are, a lot of the young postal workers are not aware of all these privileges that they have from work conditions to wages and stuff was because of the strike that they had when they took a chance on losing everything because it was illegal. It was a wildcat track. And they told them that if you went on strike, you was going to lose it. And I can remember a video that I saw one time and a woman said, well, you could lose everything. You can lose your job. You can lose your plan, everything that you work for. Why would you go on strike? And she said, I knew that I had to make things better for the generation coming behind me. And that always stuck with me. And that's mm. one of the reasons I'm in the position that I'm in today because of those powerful words about, you know, sometimes we go to work and we expect things to be perfect, but a union's job is to make things better. And I know that they are much better for me today than they were for them. And it's my job today to make it better for the generation coming after me. Right. And also I think it's striking. I mean, with, with the, you have the, the workers at Columbia uh, on Thursday, we're going to learn about the election outcome at, with the Starbucks uh, union organizing in, in Buffalo, where uh, uh, mostly younger workforce is clamoring uh, to unionize and, and trying to overcome all the obstacles that uh, the leadership of Starbucks is throwing in, in their way. And um, so it's it, it's a, a powerful moment uh, for labor organizing um, in, in this country right now. And yeah, again, the, the, the post we have four postal workers unions in this country, including the postal workers union. You lead the New York chapter. Um, can you talk about what's, what's going on with the post office right now? We're in the holiday season. It's the kind of the peak uh, time for the postal service yet. Um, somebody that Donald Trump appointed is still at the helm. And I understand is implementing a lot of uh, measures that, that maybe aren't best for either um, uh customers or workers at the Postal Service? Yes. Um, 
first of all, let me say that the postal workers are very, we are very proud of what we do. Um, when we hear that we are the most liked government agency at the 92%, we, we take pride in that because of the service that we deliver to the American people. What we were most upset about, especially in the Trump area, is how he tried to politicize the postal service uh, and, and make it as though we had a horse in the race, whether we delivered Democratic mail, Republican mail. No, what we delivered was American mail. And what DeJoy has done since he's come into office in um, June of 2020, he has taken common sense out of mail delivery, where he says that he's going to raise the prices while give the American people less service. Um, the people that I represent says that's unacceptable because people are used to the postal service being exceptional. Um, this time of year is the year that we're most excited about. Yes, it's a lot of stress and stuff that's going on, but we want to make sure that people have the greatest holiday possible by making sure not only that they get those gifts, but they get those gifts on time. And, and DeJoy says that he's going to take all the mail off of the planes and he's going to put them all on trucks, which is going to, and by doing that, October 1st, he changed the delivery standards. Now, we were already unhappy with the delivery standards of the mail, but by saying giving himself two more days to deliver the mail, he's given a false impression that now the mail is on time when it is not. So, and we just want the American people to know um, that we have this same frustration that you have when you go to your neighborhood post office and you go in there and you see eight windows and there's only two clerks at the window. And a lot of times the American people think, well, there's people sitting in the back that just don't want to work. No, that's sometimes the entirety of our staffing that we're fighting to get these windows open, to get the service that the people deserve, that we should not have lines going outside the door. And we want to also tell the American people that the postal service should be giving you more. We should be uh, doing things like um, simple, um, like postal banking, where you could come into the post office and you can um, have a small bank account, where you could come into the post office and you can make copies. How many times you're in the city and say, where can I make a copy? You should be able to come right to the post office and do those things. Um, financial services should be something that we give to deliver the American people. Why? Because in the Constitution, it doesn't say a postal business. It says we are a postal service and any service that we can give the American people is what we want to do. Right. And if you went to postal banking, I mean, that could be an alternative to people having to go through, uh, you know, these check cashing agencies and uh, other outlets that that siphon off a, a, a big part of their uh, of their paycheck. They take advantage of these communities by going to these payday loans. They take advantage of these communities. Uh, they take money out of their check that they should not have to give their hard earned money for the simple fact that all they want to do is cash their checks. And it's not like it's something that we have not done before from 19, I believe it was 1911 to 1967. We did postal banking and it was very successful and postal banking is done in other countries. This should be something that we're offering the American people. Don't uh, make it uh, look as though that the postal service is past its time. Don't make it look as though that the postal service cannot meet its mission, what we need to do is we need an opportunity to show the people what we've always done. We deliver. Right. And, and if we can just go back here just to break down th things a little bit. Uh, when, when, when you talk about how the, the, the delivery standards were changed on October 1st, I mean, it, first of all, the idea that mail that was once uh, transported in planes is now being put in trucks. I mean, this is a, a, a very large country. So um, that, I mean, 
what's the next step uh going back to the pony express but anyway um you know so so they're essentially moving the goalpost and saying what you know five day delivery is now the new three day delivery and um uh it, it, it's really in, in, incredible and and you know I, I don't think the public you know realizes what what's going on here well i think uh, i like to say that when it doesn't make common sense it just doesn't make sense and uh and it's not like they're trying to hide what they're trying to do because he put it in the form of a 10 year plan and he said and in the 10 year plan if you read that document is is only about 57 58 pages where he talks about raising rates twice a year where he talks about changing the delivery standards, where he's talking about the closing and consolidation of processing centers, where he talks about taking the mail off the plane and putting it on the truck. It just does not make common sense, and it does not work. So we need somebody that's more interested in giving a service to the American people than to making their Republican counterparts, which he's contributed to many years, happy. That's he's not the leader that the postal service should have in Mr. Lewis DeJoy. Right. And, and I mean, another impact when we talk about the, um, the, I guess the almost privatization of some of these, uh, um, uh, surface transit centers where, uh, like, uh, the mail and the packages are handled, uh, they're now what going more to a, a, a temporary workforce that doesn't, doesn't have the full, uh, civil service status and, and, and I understand there that sometimes these people are in and out of there very quickly and, and you now have a more unstable workforce. Absolutely. He's developed these surface transfer centers, um, these, what he calls these, these, um, mail processing hubs. But what he's doing is he's advertising it as though they are a part of the postal network, which they are not. And he's hiring people from the street without any background checks like the uh, postal workers go through a background check because what's important to us is also the security of your mail. So um, he's doing these things. And even though he's advertising it as postal workers, there are no postal workers working in these facilities. So um, the American people needs to know this is nothing more than pseudo privatization. That's why I laughed at the Board of Governors meeting when the former Ron Bloom says, well, if we would be putting all this money into our into our infrastructure, we'll be putting all this money into getting new trucks. How can we want to privatize the postal service? Well, I've told him I've never seen anybody that wanted to sell their house not fix up their house first so they can get the most they can get for their house. So this is the equivalent of what they're doing. Right. And, and I understand that there's one uh, very uh, massive uh, uh, distribution center over in Jersey City uh, that's um, unused right now or underutilized. Well, there's the, um, the National, National distribution. distribution Center over in Jersey City. Um, that's where they took a lot of that mail and they're transferring it out to the STC Center in Phillipsburg, New Jersey, which is a long way away. So they take the mail all the way out to Phillipsburg, New Jersey, to bring it all the way back to where the National Distribution Center already was. And they claiming that they put this in place because of the overflow of mail that's in that facility, where there is no overflow of mail in that facility. What they did was they took this mail out to the surface transfer center. So instead of paying the workers $20 an hour, they could pay them $8 an hour. And, and instead of having the mail secure uh, by changing the delivery standards, then it made it easier for them to do this. Because if you look at the last report from the Postal Service, 
even though it takes more time for it to get there because the delivery standards have changed. Like you said, they moved the goalposts. Now their report saying that they're delivering the mail at a 92 to 93% on-time rate, which we know is a lot. Your common sense tells you that when you're sitting at home waiting for a package one and a half to two weeks, do you feel like that's on time? <laughs> no. Uh, so what's going on uh, at, at the national level? Why uh why hasn't President Biden and his administration um, made changes to uh, in, get this uh, Trump operative out of there? Uh, Louis well, President Biden has taken the first steps to correcting the situation. He's just recently um, nominated someone to take Ron A. Bloom as of tomorrow, a matter of fact. Ron A. Bloom term is up. And he also recommended uh, somebody to take Bodger's place, which was supposed to change the dynamic of the Board of Governors because the president does not have the power to remove the Postmaster General. That power is invested in the Board of Governors, who's supposed to be a representative of the American people. The problem that we might have with that is uh, Lee Moak is on there. Lee Moak was the same person that voted in favor of the 10-year plan. Lee Moak has showed his support for Louis DeJoy. Lee Moak is supposedly a Democrat, but nothing in his actions say he's a Democrat. So Lee Moak might be a Democrat, but if he's voting with the Republican, we still might not have enough votes to remove Louis DeJoy as Postmaster General of the Postal Service. Right, because the, the, that Board of Governors, uh, when it's fully stocked, has n- nine members and five from the party that controls the White House and four from the other party, and it sounds like you have a situation where the Democrats would hold five seats, but one of those five people, uh, Lee Moak, is uh, voting with the Republicans. Uh, uh, that must be, yeah, as you're saying, that that must be frustrating. I'm hoping that he's not voting with the Republican, but sometime when you look at someone's history and what he's done already, I'm not confident that he would vote the right way and do the right thing. Because since he's been there, he's gone along with the program that everything that hurts the American people and hurts the Postal Service. So his history that I'm seeing in, in supporting the 10-year plan and supporting Louis DeJoy does not give me confidence that he would vote in favor of getting rid of Louis DeJoy. Mm. And, and uh, uh, before we wrap up here, uh, any final thoughts on uh, how, how the public can uh, get involved, either uh, learn more about this or if there's... Um, other ways they can, um, you know, uh, join you all in standing up for having a sound and uh, vibrant postal service in this country? Well, what the public can do right now, there is postal Postal service reform act. That's HR 3076. They can call their representatives and say, we want uh, the postal service reform act. That would uh, get rid of the PAEA, Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act, where we pay benefits 75 years into the future for people that's not born yet. It would also make the Postal Service more accountable in their reporting process to, to the American people. This would be a big step in um, helping get in the Postal Service the relief that we need and hopefully the new postmaster that we need. But we need that, legislative to get, that legislation to get through. And it's going to be very important to get that legislation through because um, we don't know what's going to happen with this COVID virus. But what we do know, the safest way to vote is vote by mail. We need to make sure that that ability to vote by mail, to let your democratic rights be served and your voices to be heard, stays in place. Okay, well, we'll leave it there. But uh, Jonathan Smith, president of the 
New York Postal Workers Union. Thank you so much for joining us this evening on WBAI Radio. Thank you so much, and thank you so much for what you do for labor. Right on, always. All right, we will be back after uh, this short break. That was Wait a Minute, Mr. Postman by the Marvettes. Uh, and this is uh, John Tarleton for the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. Uh, we're going to uh, continue uh, with our, our next guest in a moment, uh, but I do want to take a, a minute to underscore um, how important it is uh, this month t- to give to and support uh, WBAI, in particular uh, here at the station. Uh, there's we've got a, a fund drive underway to pay the the bills for the our, our radio antenna um, not only to finish out 2021 but to pay ahead for 2022. Uh, you know, there's nothing more fundamental for a radio station uh, than to have uh, antenna up there uh, at at the top uh, of one of the tallest buildings in New York beaming. Uh, WBAI signal across the greater New York City region, across the five boroughs, uh, on over to New Jersey, Long Island, Hudson River Valley, uh, parts of Connecticut. And it, it's uh, you, the, the listener, that makes all of that possible. Um, and and uh, so, um, yeah, the, the station, its antenna is at four times square. It's a 52-story skyscraper we got that an- antenna uh, way up there at the top you know beaming away the the rent is seventeen thousand dollars a month it's not cheap to to broadcast here in in New York but obviously WBAI is an absolutely unique uh, community radio community broadcast institution uh, you're able to hear shows like this and so many other uh, really amazing unique uh, public news public affairs uh, music and cultural shows throughout the week, 168 hours a week of, of original programming. Also uh, programs like Democracy Now! every morning, Monday to Friday, that you can hear on, hear on WBAI. And, uh, and, it, and it starts with having that antenna up on, on top of a four times square and being able to cover our, our rent for that. And if you want to help out, you can go to towerfund.wbai. Dot O-R-G. Again, it's towerfund.wbai.org. And, and if you go to, uh, to that URL, 
see the information about how you can give. And uh, anyway, it's a great way to end the year if WBAI already has its antenna bill uh, paid for 2022. Uh, it would be a real, uh, real you know, financial uh, bedrock there going forward instead of having to sweat that out from month to month. Uh, so again, one more time, it's towerfund.wbai.org. And um, uh, we're going to move on to our next guest. Uh, we had uh, planned to have a, a, a Christmas tree vendor join us to also talk about the holiday season. Uh, we, we've had a te- technical glitch with that, but we're thrilled to have our next guest join us all the way from uh, Boston, Massachusetts. Of course, uh, here in New York, we're going to have a new mayor come on board on January 1st, uh, Eric Adams. And um, a lot of people are wondering uh, how that's going to go. Uh, Adams ran a, a, as a conservative Democrat and um, has a lot of Republican friends. But we'll see uh, you know, uh, where he ends up. But up in Boston uh, in, uh, in November, they elected uh, Michelle Wu, unabashedly uh, progressive city council member who ran on the promise of a, a, a municipal Green New Deal and uh, also called for uh, free mass transit for making the subway system, the buses and the subway system in Boston free for all its users and also for uh, rent control and decommodifying housing. So uh, Boston's uh, taking a leftward turn and, and um, it, it's exciting to follow from a distance to at this time where a lot of people say, oh, you can't do anything too big. Um, you know, Boston's uh, uh, going in some new directions. And uh, joining us uh, today to talk about this is uh, uh, Evan George. Uh, uh, he, uh, he's the editor of the Bostopia, uh, Bostopia News uh, podcast. It's also uh, very popular on TikTok. Uh, Evan, welcome to WBAI Radio. Thank you, John. Good to be here. I don't think I've ever been described as an editor before. So that was a nice title bump. Thank you. Okay. Uh, you earned it. Uh, so, um, yeah, can, can you just uh, tell us a little bit, first of all, uh, about Michelle Wu and the, the kind of uh, promises she made that, that got a lot of people excited and, and helped deliver a, a landslide victory for her in, in November? Absolutely. So Michelle has an incredible story, especially to become now the first woman to ever be the elected mayor in the city of Boston and the first person of color in our history. And one of the most spectacular things about her is that she didn't grow up in Boston. And nativism is a very strong force in municipal politics, certainly is in Boston. I'm sure New York isn't too much of an exception. But Michelle was um, the descendant of Taiwanese immigrants. English is not her first language. She grew up, I believe, speaking Mandarin. Didn't come to the city until she attended Harvard, really at the turn of the millennia. Had to move back to Chicago to take care of her family. Her mother was dealing with mental illnesses, brought her family back to Boston and then really has been on a path towards this seat for about 12 to 13 years in terms of working in the community, gaining trust, earning a seat on the Boston City Council back in 2013. And she most certainly would not have been described as a progressive back in that time. I'm not sure if anyone described themselves as a progressive back in 2013, but her politics, like most of ours, have been pulled in either direction. And for Michelle, fortunately, that has been to the left and policies like rent control, which as early as, I believe, 2019, she was still against. Now she's in favor of bringing that back to Massachusetts. In terms of addressing our housing emergency, she's calling for, again, the decommodification of housing. And just to have somebody with that lens speaking as a socialist, I'm incredibly um, 
just hopeful in terms of what the future will hold with somebody with that lens. And as you mentioned in your intro, she's mostly known for her advocacy around Green New Deal legislation. What does that look like at the municipal level? And most particularly, fare-free public transportation. No longer viewing our public uh, public transportation network as something that should be run as a business, something that needs to turn a profit, but instead as a public good, a public necessity. And Michelle understands and believes in that and has already made progress in achieving that goal. Yeah, can you talk about the uh, initial steps? Uh, uh, three bus lines have been made uh, free. Uh- Absolutely. So during the COVID pandemic, a lot of cities and towns across the country really allowed themselves to be creative about public transportation. Obviously, cities were shut down. No one was riding. So some cities, they use this time ideally to do capital improvements, things that they wouldn't have been able to do. But here in Boston, and I believe in some other cities, Lawrence and Massachusetts, I think L.A. out in the West Coast is looking at this too, started envisioning fare-free transit. And so we ran a pilot program off of Route 28, which is a bus uh, route here in Boston, which goes through the poorest communities of Mattapan, Dorchester, Rosendale. And it was incredibly successful. It ran for a few months. They came in under budget. It achieved basically the same ridership levels as pre-COVID, one of the only transportation networks to achieve that. And so they decided to extend it. And because Michelle, her election was following someone who was the acting mayor, she was sworn in almost immediately. It was a very quick turnaround. It was two weeks from our election, November 4th. So let's call it Michelle took office on the 28th. And within a few days, she decided to uh, pass an ordinance to have two more additional bus lines, uh, routes 23, 29, still through underserving communities, be fare-free for two years. And having a pilot program last that long is incredibly beneficial. All too often, municipalities do pilot programs that last a few months. And by the time anyone even knows they exist, boom, they're gone. And so Michelle had a lot of forethought in extending it. And this will be drawing from some of the federal funds that Boston has received um, in terms of helping uh, regain the city from the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm. And, uh, and that got strong support at, at the city council as well, because she can't just oh, well, wave that's, a magic um, wand. I, I wish it did. In fact, what ended up happening was Michelle issued this ordinance. It was expected to go through right ahead, really just saying, you know, let's, uh, for goal the rules, let's vote on this. There's no uh-huh. reason to have to kick through committees after committees. And a city councilor who was actually an opponent of Michelle Wu during the mayoral race, uh, city councilor Andrea Campbell, put a stop to it, basically used legislative maneuver to, no, to not allow it to be voted on to kick it back into committee. And that honestly could have killed it. And that is normally how things die in municipalities. It gets sent to committee, it gets buried. Fortunately, the head of that committee, someone who no one would consider on the left, uh, City Councilor Michael Flaherty, referred to as five-car Flaherty, so not exactly somebody you think would be an advocate of public transportation, fortunately saw the political wins. Michelle wanted a massive mandate. Two out of every three voters supported her in a blowout election we haven't seen in a while. And so he put that back on a fast track that was able to have another vote, and it did end up passing the City Council in a 12-to-1 vote. And so, again, while, you know, 12 to 1 is great, the path to get there met some resistance. And I think one of the big challenges we'll see under a Wu administration is what happens when your mayor is to the left of your city council and your city council wants to take credit for some actions, wants to stall others. Can you move things through? She was successful in this case. And let's hope that continues through our first term. Right. And and beyond the, you know, the legislative maneuverings and whatnot, 
uh, I mean, the larger significance of, of, of a program like this uh, uh, to me seems to be that it, it, it's uh, breaking uh, ground for the idea of, of free universal services. I mean, we've talked, you know, we hear a lot of talk about Medicare for all and uh, other things that the, that the left has really uh, started to push aggressively in recent years. But can you talk about that? Like when, uh, how the, the free mass transit push in Boston is, is giving uh, renewed uh, attention to that approach to governing. And, you know, the, the, the first part of that question is basically everyone knows this will be successful. Everyone is going to enjoy having free bus lines through Boston, especially the most underserving communities. And so even the more conservative elements are worried. Once you start giving people things for free, once you start realizing what government can provide, they're going to expect it. And so, as you said, this can begin a snowballing effect, not just through other bus routes, not just through our MBTA network, but through other things as well, not just public transportation. And in terms of how we're implementing this, why a Medicare for all model or free at the point of service is the most successful, because there is an element of liberalism that wants to means test all these programs to death that uses the policy language of equity and equality. No, we need to be helping the people who need it the most. However, they end up creating bureaucracies which restrict those very people because people who are poor have a very hard time proving they are poor. It actually takes a lot of money and a lot of time to have the documentation to say, I need this. And anyone who's ever been on unemployment, I've been on it myself, knows the 37 steps we put in front of people, because in reality, we want to restrict who has access. And so it'll always be the most undeserving elements of your community that have the hardest time proving they need it. And that is why free at the point of service, you don't need to fill out a form, you don't need an ID, just get on the bus and enjoy your ride is the most successful. And just one additional element to this for people listening, how we will be doing the analysis, the data is they are actually going to be on the buses themselves having surveys with the people actually riding. And this is very important because there's a lot of ways to skew data. And you could just talk to some residents of the community who think, well, I don't ride the bus. My tax dollars are going to this. I'm not enjoying it. This is bad. Talk to the actual people who are enjoying it. Talk to the actual people who are riding the bus. So a few extra dollars in their pocket at the end of the day makes all the difference. And actually, it's probably going to have massive economic benefits because, again, now you don't have to spend your income on to and from your work. You can now use that to go buy a lunch, to go buy dinner, to maybe knock off a little bit over your rent over the uh, upcoming weeks. And so free at the point of service, it helps in so many different ways that really will just scratch the surface with. Right. Yeah. It's almost like uh, some of some of these uh, people are more afraid that it'll succeed than in, that it'll fail. Uh, we 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 have a, a clip uh, here in a sec uh, of uh, Michelle Wu uh, uh, talking uh, sh- uh, shortly after she uh, came into office uh, about sort of her uh, approach to governance. Uh, I think we'll listen to that here in a, in a moment. Is it possible for Boston to deliver basic city services and generational change? It is absolutely necessary in this moment. We'll tackle our biggest challenges by getting the small things right, by getting City Hall out of City Hall into our neighborhoods, block by block, street by street. So uh, that that was uh, Boston's new mayor, Michelle Wu. We're we're uh, here on WBI here in New York, but we're uh, looking closely at what's happening in Boston because it's, it's a really exciting moment there. We're about to have a new mayor and um we're kind of seeing a best case scenario for what can happen. Um, 
in, in a city with progressive governance. So uh, was she speaking there? And it feels like she's uh, having to sort of answer the critics of like, oh, if you have bold ideas, you, that must mean you're not going to be responsible about doing like the, the small day-to-day things. Um, can you talk about that sort of uh, uh, dichotomy that a, a lot of liberals have uh, worked up in their minds that if, if you're ambitious, you must not care about the, the small practical things? And this is most certainly a narrative that the media attempted through much of the campaign. Um, again, this was a very historic campaign. We had four viable candidates. They were all women of color. Once it ended up being narrowed down to the top two, you had the most progressive candidate being Michelle Wu and the most conservative candidate being Anissa Sabi George, who very much, you know, from Dorchester, from uh, Boston, that was a big talking point in terms of the nativism, again, trying to tap into it. And the media would try to frame them as Anissa, the conservative candidate, was, you know, the potholes candidate, the one who's going to fix the streets, whereas Michelle has these big lefty ideas, but won't actually be able to get anything done. And fortunately, because the people of Boston have so much trust in Michelle, Again, she ran for office first in 2013, and as a relative political newcomer, she ended up getting the second highest vote total in an at-large election throughout Boston, something incredible. And it really came from just shoe leather campaigning, her going through every community of Boston, every neighborhood, drawing on the networks of some of her mentors, Elizabeth Warren and our former historic mayor, uh, Tom Menino. And ultimately, what Michelle is going to kind of like straddle the lines between very much and again, modeled after her mentor, Elizabeth Warren. Warren was her professor at Harvard when Michelle was a law student there, is having your eye on a larger goal, but making significant marginal improvements in that direction. Now, that isn't the big baseball home run, isn't exactly the same type of organizing methodology that we'll say a Bernie Sanders candidate might have. But again, Michelle is advocating for some very strong left programs like fair free public transportation, like increasing public housing, like how do you deal with homelessness and mental illness around addiction? And she is already proving within maybe two or three weeks of her mayorship that you can get these things done. And while they sound big and bold, we are, again, really just beginning to meet all the needs that a city like Boston has. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about uh, new approaches on, on, on housing and homelessness from the uh, push uh, around rent control to uh, uh, new approaches to uh, helping people who um, are, are living on the streets? Absolutely. And th- those are three big topics. You might need to repeat them um, once I finish. But I-, I love to start with rent control. Because, you know, uh, looking at from Boston to New York, I'm certainly jealous that you still have some institutions like rent control. It's not exactly the type of rent control that if I got to draft the policy would reflect here in Boston, but you have it nonetheless. And so here in Massachusetts, through a very sneaky ballot initiative in 1994, we ended up removing the right of any city or town to have rent control. Now, there are 351 cities and towns in Massachusetts. At that time, only three. Only three had rent control, Boston, Cambridge, and Brookline. And because they were so overwhelmingly popular in those cities, landlords who wanted and large uh, developers who wanted to get rid of it did a nice little legislative maneuver, put it on a ballot initiative. And so you had every city and town across the state getting to vote on, again, something that only impacted three cities and towns. Uh, Boston, Cambridge, and Brookline overwhelmingly voted to support it. However, when you take it in the aggregate, I believe it lost uh, 51 to 49. And so since then, we have not been able to use rent control. 
And while there are a lot of policies that talk about how it might have some impact in terms of housing development and in terms of uh, private equity, every study that has ever been done on rent control shows that it helps keep people in their homes. And when you are facing an eviction crisis, when you view housing not as a commodity, but as a public good, keeping people in their homes should be the primary objective. And again, this is something back, I believe, as soon as 2019, Michelle spoke out against, but I think from, again, the growing tide winds of our political polarization, it is a policy that she has come around on. Again, because I think I credit that to her view of housing uh, switching from property value is not going to be the be-all end-ball when you're talking about something like housing. It's going to be, can people afford to live where they are? Can people stay in their homes? And rent control is a absolute beautiful tool for that. Now, we have some uh, restrictions in terms of how can we get this done? Because Massachusetts uses a home rule system, which basically means that we need to petition our very lethargic state house to let us do this. However, yeah. Michelle can use some political clout to put pressure on the number of House representatives who are up for re-election in 2022. And that's something I certainly hope she takes advantage of. Yeah, no, we've uh, faced similar challenges here in New York with our own uh, state legislature. And it, it took an enormous push to uh, win some uh, major rent law reforms a couple of years ago. Um, and also here in New York with our, our new ma- uh, mayor, Eric Adams, coming in, I mean, we have a tremendous uh, uh, homelessness crisis here. And, and um, uh, you know, there's been a, a, a lot of discussion about whether um, the city might start to move uh, some of those folks uh, into empty hotels, um, uh, spaces that are not being used uh, since the pandemic uh, struck. And uh, I understand um, you all started to do that in Boston since uh, uh, Michelle Wu came into office a few weeks ago. Yes. So we have a neighborhood of Boston, which is an interstate section. I think it's the largest one in Massachusetts. This area is referred to as Mass and Cass, uh, Molina Cass Boulevard, and the abbreviation just Mass and Cass. And because that is also where the city's methadone clinics are, and there's a lot of public services there, People who are facing homelessness, who have mental health issues, have been congregating in that area. And this is not nothing new. This has been going on for at least a decade. And what happens then from our previous mayor, Marty Walsh, the police would go in at the dead of night using violence, ripping down the encampments at a building, pushing people either away or throwing them in uh, prisons. We had an acting mayor, Kim Janey, once Marty Walsh left to be the labor secretary, who followed that same policy. Just rip it down. People who won't leave have a warrant, throw them in jail. There are evidence of them being denied treatment while um, acting there. Kim Janey was saying everyone is being provided treatment. And during that process, a nonprofit, I believe Victory Programs, said, well, listen, there is an empty hotel, 200 beds, a quarter of a mile away, not even. Why don't you let us use that empty infrastructure and we will run a housing first program. We will give people housing. They don't need to sleep on the street. And then we will provide treatment for the people who would like to receive it. And that's a really important distinction because what we try to do here, and I'm sure in New York, you've had this um, already, if not already going through it, is the concept of forced treatment. That no, these people don't know what's best for them. We're going to throw them in a cage. And every doctor, researcher, public health official can tell you that that makes things worse. That'll increase hospitalizations. That'll increase overdoses. That'll increase crime. It'll end up costing your city more money. You need to do a housing first uh, policy. 
again, under acting Mayor Kim Janey, this was denied and removed. However, Michelle Wu, I believe as soon as yesterday or the day before, was saying every option is on the table, and this is absolutely going to be one of them. And so fortunately, nothing has, you know, we haven't taken that next step, but voicing support of it is, again, 100% a step in the right direction. And now it's really on us to put pressure to make sure that Michelle Wu carries forward with, again, what every doctor, scientist, researcher, when it comes to public health is telling you. People who are homeless, give them homes. It, it is that simple. Right. And, and speaking of uh, police, the police force, uh, what is the performance of the police force in Boston been like recently, uh, you know, in, in a nutshell? And uh, how is uh, Michelle Wu approaching that? Because obviously uh, taking on the police force is uh, often the most uh, charged uh, battle that any mayor can uh, uh, try to fight. Absolutely. And, you, you know, I'm sure Boston has a nationwide reputation in terms of the racism of the Boston police department in terms of the corruption, though I have to imagine racism and corruption are pretty standard for police departments across the country. And what we started to see is, you know, they will get any city contract they want, just, just ask and they'll receive it. And now things started to change uh, this summer of 2020 during the George Floyd protests, when finally there was strong advocacy against this, the Boston police department is the second largest in terms of what our city funds go to after our education system, about $400, $420 million. And in during the course of those protests, people were saying, hey, we could actually be putting these funds towards things which reduce crime, towards actually giving people housing, economic opportunity, infrastructure, schooling, healthcare, things that we know actually reduce crime in our neighborhoods. Why aren't we doing that? And this became a rallying cry, and there were, I believe, four city councilors, Michelle being one of them, that for the first time voted no on the mayor's budget, which is something which is a rubber-stamped policy, which always goes through. And just this past year, Michelle also, now one of two, voted no on the mayor's budget, saying, basically, we are giving too much money to the police department and not enough towards public services. And now during her campaign, Michelle never came out and used the phrase defund the police. She never gave a dollar figure that she was willing to cut or remove. However, she continued to use the language of reallocation. And one of the big things is around overtime pay because of a very, very generous contract that was signed, I believe, maybe uh, in 2012. The police are allowed to go over their overtime budget as much as they want. It is a limitless cap. It is a bottomless hole. Choose your own uh, metaphor. And so every year they spend tens of tens of tens of millions of dollars over what is allocated. The average cop in Boston makes $120,000 a year. You can take the top 30 salaries of Boston police officers, combine them, and it's roughly $9.5 million. It is completely out of control. And their contract expired June of 2020. I think both them and police-friendly Marty Walsh said we shouldn't renegotiate this now in the middle of a civil unrest over funding the police. Let's wait until I'm reelected to have a cools. But Marty Walsh left us for Washington, D.C. We now have Michelle Wu as mayor. And so we're going to see how much Michelle is willing to fight against what is a incredibly corrupt and overfunded police department. Well, that sounds uh, familiar uh, from here in New York as well. Um, it's been fascinating to sort of hold up the mirror between uh, our two cities here in New York and uh, Boston. I know we have a lot of Yankees fans here who gag at the thought of the of the Sox, but uh, a lot to learn from our our, our, our friends in, in Boston as well. Um, and, and I guess last thing before we have to go real quick, 
uh, you have a very active uh, chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America up there. You're uh, very active in it. Um, do you give us a quick, very quick rundown on on what you all have been up to, and we'll have to call it a, call it a night. Yeah, fantastic. And again, thank you so much for having me on. So the Boston chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, I believe we are the sixth largest in the nation, close to 3,000 members in the greater Boston community. And we're fighting for the very policies that we've been discussing here, whether that is a Green New Deal for the city of Boston, whether that is a focus of upon housing as a human right versus a commodity. And of course, we are involved in electoral politics, trying to get elected great socialists to represent their values, their, their community, and to do really different modeling um, in terms of mobilizing people. And this past electoral cycle, we ended up getting into office or reelecting seven municipal um, city councilors in areas of Cambridge, of Somerville, of Medford, and um, Maybe, you know, the cherry on top uh, here in Boston with Kendra Hicks representing what is historically one of the most conservative seats on the Boston City Council. And she is most certainly not just the first socialist in at least a century to be on the Boston City Council, but she is the first black woman socialist ever to be elected in Boston's history. And she's already changing the narrative. And we already see city councilors that were very happy in the liberal to progressive leaning starting to already get the air of Kendra Hicks, starting to already adopt some of these policies. I believe she was going to be named the chair of the housing committee. And so having someone like Kendra, a socialist, being in charge of the Boston City Council's committee on housing is incredibly, um, I mean, just something I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled about to see what she can do with that position, how to give our lens and our narrative to what has been a housing crisis in the city. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there. But Evan George of uh, Bostopia News and Boston DSA, thank you so much for uh, joining us this evening on WBAI Radio here in New York. My pleasure, John. Take care. Okay, and uh, we're going to wrap it up uh, uh, for the Independent News Hour. Uh, I thank our uh, board engineer, uh, uh, Reggie Johnson, also Amber Gagarian, Renee Feltz helped with the show. And uh, uh, we'll be preempted next week, but again, also... You can uh, go to uh, 212-209-2950 or um, uh, also to WBAI.org to help with our tower fund to uh, pay our antenna rent for all of 2022. Thank you and have a good night.